Hello and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast, and this is number 76, which makes me think instantly of the Philadelphia 76ers. Not that I'm a fan of the team, I hasten to add. Takes me back to the days when I did some sports on the radio and you had to memorize all of the teams in all of the sports and all the different divisions. I could probably still name all the teams in the four major sports in North America, but I'd be pushed to remember all the divisions. And then once you get to the minor leagues, the teams change location and affiliation and names so often it's hard to keep up. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and of course we're here to talk about dairy and not about sports. Pretty crazy when there is more to talk about in dairy than sports, although I did see this week that hockey, or ice hockey, and football, or soccer, are still in full swing in Belarus. No idea how you'd watch it online, though, or even how sensible it is to be continuing that. Pretty much everything else is on lockdown, and it seems like it's been months, but it's only been a few weeks, even less in some places. I hope you're able to work from home and finding a routine that you're not suffering with too much. I also hope you're reaching out if you need help. I grew up in one of those very traditional homes where you didn't open up much, even less if it was related to mental health issues. So please be a shoulder and an ear if someone needs it, and if you need it, please reach out to someone. Today is April the 1st, but you won't be finding any April the 1st, April Fool's jokes from me. And having said that, I can't say that I really ever liked them anyway. Okay, so let's move on to this week's show. We have two interviews for you this week, and before you think you've been shortchanged, it's still quite a long one, as the two interviews are both more than 10 minutes. So when you add in this week's news and me rambling on, it's still more than half an hour. So, who do we have on the show? Well, I wasn't able to go to the Netherlands recently, but I did one of the interviews over the internet, although I still, hopefully, will be able to get over there later in the year, or early next year, depending on how this all pans out. That chat was with the owner of Willycroft, Brad Vanstone. And to let you know what Willycroft is, well, it's Amsterdam's only cheese alternative store in a city of cheese lovers. So we'll tell you that story. And we also chatted to Richard Nickel, Chief Commerce Officer and Managing Director of Dubai-based consultancy Liquid Retail about the coronavirus pandemic and how it's affecting the Middle East, but also some fascinating insights into the potential future of retail once all this pandemic is in the past. And so let's get to the news you may have missed. Although chances are, if you're working from home, you're reading everything. Watching television shows you've not watched in years, dug out the old DVDs, and even resorted to reading some of those books that you said you'd get around to eventually. And I did something astonishingly rash myself this week, and ordered a jigsaw puzzle online. And it allegedly arrives today. As an aside, before I start on the news, as I just remembered for about 15 podcasts in a row, I seem to remember talking about how it was raining every day here in Scotland. And of course, the way life works, now we're on lockdown, it's not rained for 10 days. Okay, this week's news. We've had a few articles on the positive things dairy companies are doing in the light of the crisis. Companies such as Danone North America, Chobani, Vina Milk, Nestle and Maple Hill Creamery have all been making positive contributions of one form or another. 
Because of increased demand, several companies have announced they are ramping up production, such as Ketone and Muller in the UK, who are also on a hiring spree to keep deliveries flowing. There's also reports that after the pandemic, probiotics and products with health claims, especially with respect to the immune system, will be much sought after. We also had stories on Valio's 2019 financials. The FDA has reopened the comment period on the use of ultra-filtered milk in cheese in the US, and the European Dairy Association continues to look for answers from the European Union. U.S. Dairy has responded to the CARES Act and is pushing the government to purchase dairy products, and Greenfield's dairy plant in Indonesia is set to lower its carbon emissions with a total solar DG solar system. And that's different from the solar system with planets in it, obviously, in case you were wondering. All these stories and more can be found on DairyReporter.com, where you can also find a blog on coronavirus and the food industry with all the latest news and updates. And so let's get to the first guest this week. As I mentioned earlier, I was all set to go on a trip around the Netherlands to do some articles on a variety of subjects from cutting-edge dairy research to a cheese museum, a dairy ingredients lab and a cheese farm, among others. And my last stop was to have been in Amsterdam to visit Willycroft, Amsterdam's plant-based cheese alternative shop. And because the trip was cancelled, I arranged to have a chat anyway with the company's founder, Brad Vanstone, about the shop and the whole story of what the company does. I know that you're from the UK and that you live in Amsterdam. Obviously, COVID-19 is the big topic of discussion for everybody right now. Um, are things, are your products flying off the shelves in the Netherlands? The stuff that we had in there, 100%, but we unfortunately had uh, quite a few products going in over the next few months, and all of that's been parked for now. But we're, we're in a pretty good place because we can use this time quite well, so we're just getting a few more products through and we've got a lot of um, impact projects we're doing. Uh, we're actually starting to work with some dairy farmers to actually plant some of our ingredients uh, here in the Netherlands. So at the moment we're just scoping out which ingredients we're going to use and we're going to just be doing small pilot projects initially to build a bit of faith with the farmers that they can, can make a, um, a big commitment to it. So there's a lot of research we need to do with that. So it's quite a good time to double down on that. But yeah, there is still a reasonable amount of opportunity out there. There's a lot of online and uh, people are putting together these gift boxes with, uh, say, 10 different products. Um, and then you you just buy this, this one big gift box and support a load of different initiatives. So there's there's some stuff going on. Do you do, you do mail order as well? So we're actually, as we speak, just setting up an online store because as of... As of uh, kind of today, we we didn't have any way to, for people to uh, to purchase our cheese other than through partners. So, yeah, we're we're basically putting everything from the store online. Uh, so that also includes the other cheeses we sell. So we sell about uh, 10 to 15 other cheeses from friends and partners in in Amsterdam. So so it'll it'll include everything. And you you have a physical shop in Amsterdam as well, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's a really beautiful street, and yeah, we've we've got a really nice base here, um, right in in the heart of Amsterdam. And are all of the products in your store plant based? They are. Yes, yes, they are. 
And where do they come from? Are they all just from the Netherlands or from other places as well? So at this stage, just from Amsterdam, actually. Um, pretty much everything that's being made is from Amsterdam as of now. There seems to be these little pockets of places where it's made, and Amsterdam is one of those um, places. Um, we have had some samples from the UK. We might start stocking some at some point, but essentially until we find something that is as good or, or actually better than what we've got currently, we are not going to replace it. And actually, I think what is being made here in Amsterdam is of a higher quality right now than, than what's available in the UK. So uh, we're quite fortunate to be in a little hub. The other producers that supply you with products, how are they coping with the current crisis in terms of being able to meet demand? Yeah, I mean, some of them are restaurants. So, I mean, that's kind of not necessarily a good thing because right now they've been really hit with the closures. But I know that they were very successful restaurants, so I think they will hopefully be okay. The smaller producers, some of them shut down. Like one of them shut down, but one of them is still going. So it's, it's a real mix. I think the, the biggest question is how long it's going to go on. So I think if we're talking two, three months, then I think things are recoverable. But if we're looking six, seven months, then I don't know what will happen for some of these guys. So how long has your business been operational? I mean, I, I guess it really started in 2018. So I I basically moved to the Netherlands in 2016. And I spent, well, basically, we, we started to eat a predominantly plant-based diet, myself and my partner, when we got here in 2016. And it was a combination of just documentaries and I think finding out one too many things about about the world. And we actually found it quite easy to give up meat and milk, but cheese was probably my favorite food until that point. And I found it really hard to give it up and even harder to find good replacements. So actually I just started making it at home, um, plant-based cheese, um, because um, yeah, the, the alternatives were, were, were pretty poor. And I actually knew how to make all the basics of dairy cheese making from my grandfather. He was a, a dairy farmer. And I had like very rough knowledge of, of how to do it. So I, I was applying basic principles of the process and similar nutritionals um, when looking for the plant-based ingredients. And actually, I was able to, to get some pretty good results. So what was initially a hobby the first six months, by May 2018, had become uh, yeah something that I realized could actually become uh, my, my job. Uh, so I spent the rest of 2018 keeping it very artisanal and really focused on the product development and just just doing some some small sales so i did a lot of markets and i did uh, a lot of small events and i sold into some kind of artisanal stores here in amsterdam and uh, by the end of 2018 i basically realized that i had something that that could really grow and there was a real gap for um i think the replacements from from meat and milk have really come on leaps and bounds, but a lot of people, I think, share my thoughts that cheese is kind of the, the next hurdle. And I think the reason that cheese hasn't been cracked is there's just so much, there's so many varieties to it and, and greater complexity. With milk, you're replacing really one product. With meat, you're replacing maybe four or five different products, beef, chicken, pork, um, etc. So with cheese, you've got 2,000 different cheeses. And they're all regional and they all 
have their own little quirks and there's just, yeah, less of a consistent base. But yeah, last year was really about kind of figuring out how we wanted to build and grow the business. So we're a very values-driven company. Actually, you can cause a lot of harm with plant-based products just as you can with dairy. Um, you know, I don't think all dairy is is evil, and I see some amazing dairy projects um, all over um, the world, you know, re regeneratively sourced farms, and there's a guy who's uh, delivering milk to Amsterdam that's literally produced 10 kilometers away. You know, there's a lot of ways we can sharpen up the existing dairy industry. So it's not, it's n it's not a case of me kind of vindictive about, about dairy because it's part of my roots, but it's really a case of me thinking, okay, well, we need to, we do need to adjust the way in which we consume food if we're to feed 10 billion people by 2050 and, uh, yeah, have any natural landscapes left. So, yeah, last year was really about how we go about positioning ourselves and, you know, the products we want to produce, the, the people we want to, to hire and the way in which we communicate things. And, uh, yeah, we raised some finance last year. We opened up the store at the end of last year. We we launched as, as a, really as a brand last year with Willie Croft and we also launched uh, retail. And then this year is really about doubling down on those efforts and now really thinking about our impact. So what we're doing is we're actually totally adjusting our supply chain because most farm-based cheese is made from nuts and those nuts are coming from uh, quite a long, long way away. Um, and often they are sourced from uh, parts of the world that actually are very uh, arid or where there's, there is some harm being caused to the local environment. Now, we actually do source our nuts from really sustainable initiatives, but we can still improve upon that. So we're actually switching um, all of our new cheeses onto a base ingredient that we can grow here in Northern Europe. And we're looking at 30 different ingredients and spending quite a bit of time testing each one to basically find out the ideal ingredient for us to use. Uh, that also ties into the project I mentioned with the, uh, the local dairy farmers. So we are yeah, essentially going to be using this knowledge that we get from the research to then work with some of these dairy farmers to begin testing planting on, on their land. And this will take a couple of years because we can't just get a yield that's good quality overnight. There are enough, there are some case studies of, of farmers who are growing things like soy and quinoa and white beans here in the Netherlands, but uh, we need to yeah continue to build some faith there. Um, and then the hope is, in three four uh, years time, we will then be able to switch a high proportion of our supply chain onto uh, the farmers here in the Netherlands. Um, so that's kind of the ambition. As you said, it's one thing having all of the right ingredients and having all the local ingredients, yeah. but then you've got to make sure that the product itself works. Yes, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, taste is absolutely paramount, and I think a lot of plant-based products do not taste good, <laughs> and they are not good for you either. Uh, they're very plasticky and, you know, sort of all sorts of processed ingredients. So it's about still producing a very tasty product 
but yeah, also thinking about you know where it's come from and uh, yeah, all of the the impact that that's caused. Clearly, over the last few years, plant-based alternatives to cheese have diversified quite considerably. What kind of products do you have in your store? From our own brands, we have uh, three sources: so fondue, cheese sauce, truffle sauce. We have a grated parmesan. We have um, a range of cream cheeses, um, and we also have um, a feta. And that feta is actually our first product using some of the, these new ingredients. So it's with white beans. Um, then we have from some of our other suppliers, we have a couple of camemberts, we have a brie, we have a couple of spreads. Then there's a few that I would say are not necessarily cheeses. They're kind of their own, their own vibe, basically, their, their own thing, but they're absolutely delicious. They, yeah, they're kind of wheels. They kind of look like cheeses, but they're they're not instantly they're not instantly linked to a dairy cheese, but they're very delicious. So yeah, we've got a decent range. The one thing we're looking to crack longer term is, is a hard cheese, and that's the real mecca for uh, anyone making uh, plant-based um, cheeses. Uh, structure is the hardest thing to recreate. Uh, milk is just the most amazing binding agent. Um, but uh, yeah, we're 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 definitely on the right track with it. We've got we've got pretty close with getting that really dense, firm structure that you get in in a harder cheese, cheese a powder or, or a cheddar. Obviously, you haven't been open for many years, but what are you seeing in terms of the way that this kind of product is being accepted in Amsterdam? Which obviously the Netherlands is synonymous with cheese. How are they? taking to these products yeah there's an awesome amount of goodwill uh behind what we're doing i mean we're we're quite lucky because we were part of a couple of uh different accelerators which basically gave us a really good community here um and obviously somewhere like amsterdam is quite forward thinking with these things um but i think people presume that these things are very much yeah city-based projects and that people outside of the cities um, aren't interested in and that's true to an extent but actually we've had loads of support from all over the Netherlands we've had people driving to the store from literally every four quarter of the Netherlands so it's been very heartening how how wide the support is and in terms of like how, how the message gets out there is that the word of mouth social media how does that work we have a really good online presence, and uh, I think people who are eating this kind of diet are very active in sharing things. So we've had a lot of support through socials and, and, and the like. I mean, a combination of the other things you mentioned, word of mouth and, and things. We also had a lot of media coverage uh, when when we first opened up. I mean, there's been so much media. Yeah, we're actually tonight on national TV for 15 minutes in a, in a short documentary. Do you plan on expanding at all? We were getting quite close, actually, uh, to getting some things set up in the UK. When hopefully all this dies down, we, we should, yeah, we, we should have some uh, some stuff come through. We've, I mean, there's a lot of interest. I'd say um, right now the, the UK is probably two years ahead of the Netherlands in terms of demand. So... 
when I went to see the retailers a couple of months back, it wasn't a question of like them understanding what plant-based was or if it's going to work. They were basically of the mindset, Let, let's do it, let's have it. It's kind of this beautiful phase where uh, there's way more demand than there is product. So you can kind of go to these guys and you don't even need to tell them to toy or sell it. They just want it. So, um, yeah, the UK will come soon. And now we head to Dubai, which is the headquarters of Liquid Retail, a consultancy company. Its chief commerce officer and managing director is Richard Nickel, a man with a whole lot of experience in retail and marketing, previously with companies such as Saatchi and Saatchi. Basically, this is a guy who knows shopper marketing in the UAE, Asia, and in fact globally. So it was great to be able to have a chat with him about how coronavirus is affecting retail in the Middle East, Asia, and everywhere else pretty much, and to get his insights into what may happen next. I think the governments here have handled the things extremely well. The situation is the same as everywhere in the world, and this is one of the wonderful things about you know the terrible thing that we're, seeing, we're living under at the moment. One of the wonderful things is that everybody's in the same boat, and so that we can empathise entirely with the people all over the world. And the, the Middle East is no is no different. The the recorded cases around the region sort of vary. Um, there's you know different reports of how many cases we've got here. Nothing like the UK from what we understand. Saudi Arabia you know, has has a few more, I think. But basically the the government seem to be on a program of sort of gradually getting people used to what is now pretty much a total lockdown. And I say the government, this is the, the UAE government, but also it's the same around the, around the region. Some weeks ago, Saudi Arabia closed its borders. Um, Kuwait did the same. Bahrain did the same. Um, around a week or so ago, I think, I think the last flight was the 25th of March, the UAE um, stopped flights. There's no company, no flights going in and out. As I understand, and gradually over the over the days, the government have introduced more measures to to encourage people to um, stay indoors, both in terms of good public education, um, a little bit of uh, carrot and a little bit of stick. There's some fines for people who uh, who don't uh, follow the the guidelines. So basically, same as everywhere, but I think people are behaving very very well. There's pretty much 100% working from home where you can now. Our agency's been working at home for about two two weeks. Our clients are all working from home. We're all enjoying the uh, newfound joys of Zoom and GoToMeeting and, and Microsoft Teams. It's having some issues in the way that we work, um, but it's not necessarily um, stopping us doing so. I think there's a great appetite to make it work from everywhere. Uh, and there's a, a, and still a, a fairly um, wonderful spirit, I think, around the place, certainly in our agency and our client base, who you know are just braving this and carrying on as, as normal. And I think um, that's sort of true in in retail too. You know, there's there's obviously specific trends happening in retail or behaviours happening in retail that we can talk about a bit later. But generally speaking, although people are not going out as much as they were. Even before those those measures were um, put in place, the, the there was not the sort of levels of panic buying or, or, or empty shelves and some of the uh, the the worst side of things that we've seen in elsewhere, elsewhere in the world. Uh, I think there's, uh, there's there's reasons for that. Parts of which are distribution and 
and parts which is, is cultural. But I, I get the sense that uh, people understand what the government are doing and, and are complying as much as they possibly can. And is shopping in the Middle East different to it would be in Western countries, say like in the UK? Retail has always been in the Middle East, you know, because it's a trading place, I guess. It's always been a bit more bit more experiential, a bit more fundamental, a bit more part of, you know, the, the cut and thrust of, of life. You mentioned the fact that the Middle East has always been traditionally based on trading. How has it developed that obviously people can't really go out? How has that really affected that interaction or the interactivity of it all? One of the key things, I mean, look, there's there's certainly a truth that because a lot of the goods from around the world pass through, you know, the, the huge port that's in Dubai, there is access to products that potentially other markets and other countries don't have quite so readily. But they, but there's also another, I think, really important um, cultural aspect to why uh, retail here has not been quite so uh, badly affected. And that is, this is a country, particularly in Dubai, in the Emirate of Dubai, where there are, you know, many, many nationalities who make their home here. And in fact, the, the local Emirati population is only around 15% of the population. So the rest of the population is made up of, of expat Arabs from various Arab nations around the region, from um, people from the Indian subcontinent, from India, from Pakistan, from Bangladesh, from Sri Lanka, um, a fair smattering of, of people from the West, um, Brits and a few Americans, a few Australians, a few South Africans. Uh, and and a, and a fair chunk of people from um, from from Asia, the Philippines, and, and China. So there's a, a a real variety of people here in Dubai who have made Dubai their home. And the one of the things that's very very uh, interesting about the way people behave here is they tend to behave like they do at home, and that means they shop like they do at home. So when you apply that to a large supermarket like Carrefour, then you'll see people all over the store heading for the pref- their preferred products all over the store. And those preferred products, by nature of the variety of the nationalities, tend to be different. There are some, you know, some exceptions, loo rolls, hand sanitizers, anti-back washes, of, sh- of course. But mostly, you know, the other the run on things like pasta, you know, doesn't 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 hasn't been seen here because people are actually, you know, buying what they would normally want to buy at home, and it's, there's not such a big run of the on, on the individual products, which I find very interesting. And because there's not been a run on products, there's been a tremendous level of trust that's been built up between shoppers and the retailers, and although restrictions in terms of movement right now mean that retailers um, are not stores are not as full as as they were and probably that's a good thing the truth is that there's no uh, expectation when you go into a store that you're going to find the shortages you do elsewhere and i think a lot of that as i say is down to the fact that uh, what you're looking for what your shopping list is varies depending on what your ethnic background and what and what country you're from we're starting to hear some reports of places opening up again, like in China. Uh, are you seeing any kind of recovery yet, or is it too early to tell? Before I, I took this role, I'd spent the last uh, five and a half years working in, in China. And obviously, I have lots of friends who, who are 
people are still there. And uh, in, in a place like Guangzhou, for instance, that has been in lockdown for 12, 12 weeks, same with Shanghai, um, we're starting to see people return to work with, with masks and, and practicing social distancing. We're seeing people, um, restaurants reopening. We're seeing people being cautiously moving back to something um, that you could describe as, as, as normal life. I think it's a very, very fragile, if it is a recovery, it's a very fragile recovery. I read today that um, there is some cinema closures and, and restaurant closures again in Shanghai. So I, I think that although compared to the rest of the world, it looks like, to, to, quote, the, uh, to quote the cliche, the, the curve is flattening uh, and maybe has flattened in, in China. The risk is still extremely keenly felt in, in all of Asia, I think. Um, Thailand, Korea, Japan, these are people, these are countries that have had a very difficult time. And I, I don't think that it, you could describe it as any sustainable recovery at the moment. I, I, unless, you know, I'm not there now, I'm in the Middle East, but certainly I would say that it's the earliest shoots, if, if any at all. I guess in troubled times such as these, we sort of cling to any bright light or even any dim light that we see coming from other countries like China. Well, I mean, there's certainly, I mean, look, you know, I remember at Chinese Chinese New Year, biggest mass exodus or migration of people on the planet every year, you know, timing couldn't be a lot worse, really, in terms of moving that um, population around the country. And since the middle of January, it's been very tough. And so I think, you know, talking to my my ex-colleagues and my friends in China, they'll, they'll, they'll tell you, you know, things are getting back to normal. But what is normal now? If not being, not sitting in within a metre of anybody is normal, then fine. If it's wearing masks out is normal, then fine. It's it's certainly on the mind. And I do think people are, you know, naturally inclined to grab for, for good news. And that's exactly as they should do. Um, and there are some, you know, there are some, some, some good news stories at all. I think business has remains very difficult in China, but I think there's some real lessons in terms of how people behaved in China during the, uh, during the lockdowns and during the self-isolation that the other markets are now sort of learning in terms of how they, how people kept themselves sane and, and, and particularly on a sort of commercial and commerce perspective what people were doing in terms of entertainment and retail while they were, you know, in those lockdown conditions. Certainly that's, um, we're seeing some similarities in terms of some of the trends that we are experiencing here in the Middle East. Do you think that that's going to lead to a more, I mean, obviously the way that retail happens is very different in different places. I mean, some countries don't have home deliveries of shopping like we do in the UK, and some countries don't really shop online very much. Do you think that we'll see a, a shift in global patterns of of how people do their shopping? I think it's inevitable that the way people go about 
shopping will, will will change. I'll give you a few a few stats from from here. So Carrefour have seen a sixty percent sixty percent increase in online shoppers in a week. So basically, you know, basic over, and they've got a lot of shoppers. So you know, sixty percent more people are buying online. Uh, up to three or four, even five times the amount of, um, of of online orders being taken by the online uh, grocery retailers here. Home delivery here, delivery is still is it has been pretty good and is pretty good. And so, someone like myself, who've not been out of my apartment for the last eight days, you know, have been able to buy groceries and and they they come within. A few hours. It's it's not the same. I think it's better in, in some ways than people who are experiencing in the in the, in the UK. Uh, but um, you know, people who maybe have never tried online retailing before, whether it be groceries or whether it be other things, have been exposed for the first time, and and they're gonna they're gonna like it. They're gonna like it. There's gonna be you know the question. Hang on a minute. Why why didn't I do this before? You know, why am I lugging big lumps of bottles of water or packets of nappies back from Tesco's or back in the back of the car. Why can't I just get them delivered? And I think the, I think naturally there, there will be a, a change in behavior. And I think, you know, there was already a trend, um, certainly here in the Middle East, of, 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 of a exponential growth in e-commerce. And I think that the momentum, the unfortunate momentum or the necessity, I suppose, that has has resulted in, uh, in in the lockdown um, is bound to continue. It's bound to continue, and and not only will it continue in terms of salience and penetration, I think it's going to change the nature of of that particular shopping channel. As I mentioned, um, you know, in China, I used to experience e-commerce not as a as a place where I was went to save time. It was a place where we went to kill time because the e-commerce platforms in China, the Alibaba, Tmall, JD.com, Little Red Book, etc., were providing not just a transactional experience, but they were providing an entertainment experience, gaming experience, branding experience. We could listen to influencers talking about the latest products. We could look at um, live streaming of demonstrations. We could read real-time ratings and reviews. We could even shop with our friends. Uh, we could, you know, put things that interested us into our baskets and never necessarily check them out. We actually saw um, some people in China um, having, you know, 500, 600 unchecked out items in their basket. You know, it was a place to visit for an entertainment experience. And that was certainly continued during the lockdown. In fact, 20, 20 to 30% increase in, in e-commerce activity and that's people going onto the site as well as e-commerce sales in here in the middle east at the moment the e-commerce is simply a a transactional place it's a place where you go to buy products you to, to, you don't go to get experiences and i think some of the retailers here the online grocery retailers like el grosa for instance have started to bring experiential um uh, tactics into their into their apps, you know, recipe suggestions and things. And I think what will change after this is the demands of shoppers of the e-commerce channel, because if people are going to um, move from a offline experiential shop in, in, in a car for or in any offline retailer, 
where they can sort of pick up the products and see the products and talk to people about the products and sample, then then they're going to need a similar access to that content, access to that data with e-commerce. And I think that's what's going to come. And I think that will drive it. We're already seeing it here. Uh, I'm not quite sure what it's like in the UK right now, but we're seeing it here. And I think that's going to be a very good thing because it will make the world a little bit more omni-commerce, which is, you know, basically commerce anywhere, everywhere, wherever, however you want to shop. And as I say, I think that's going to be generally a good thing for shoppers and, and, a, and a massive challenge for brands and retailers for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the biggest problems that we're facing in the UK right now is that we have, um, you can book shopping online, but you just can't get, you can't get it delivered. You know, there's uh, all kinds of issues in terms of delivery and, and stock that isn't available. And, and hopefully that will, in the long term, will sort itself out. But right now it's a bit of a disaster here. Yeah, I think I think it comes down to, you know, good experience, bad experience. I think if you've had bad experiences, then you can't wait to get back into your Tesco's and do your weekly shop. In the, you know, here, if, good, if you have good experiences, you will use it again. I mean, I mean, this is I mean, as I said, I came I came back to Dubai uh, middle of last year. And, you know, what, what I what coming from China and, and, and what I found was a, a digital first e-commerce market ready to happen crazy things so not only have you got you have your online grocery delivery that was well established or becoming established you know and you had your e-food ordering your your deliveries and your uber eats that was basically the thing that people did you also had crazy things like um you had cafu which was an app where if you if you engage with the app and let you and you could get a mobile petrol delivery truck to come along and fill your car up anywhere you wanted via your app so you would uh, so this was basically um e-commerce for petrol which was even in china pretty much unheard of so this element of convenience this element of buying when you want and and letting the shoppers be in control i think was happening anyway and i think the coronavirus and the lockdown that has resulted is, is just going to accelerate the trend. What do you think it's going to do long term to prices? Because one of the things that we're noticing is that, especially on things that are in short supply, prices are going up. People are losing jobs, so they can't afford the prices in the first place. Are we getting into uh, issues over pricing and affordability? I don't see retail channels and price as linked, as directly linked like that. I, I, I don't think it's about things are going to be cheaper on e-commerce. I think what you know, at the moment, there's some clearly some opportunism being exhibited by some retailers and some brands. My hope is that people won't forget. If people have been asked to pay three times the amount of money for the same product they did before the uh, pandemic, then my my hope is that people understand that, remember that, and uh, you know, vote with their wallets and vote with their feet when it's when it's done. It's probably true that e-commerce does offer some economic benefits some price benefits i don't think it's going to i don't see a upward driving a sustainably upward driving of prices either online or offline i i think there's all i mean when it comes to grocery retailing and when it comes to you know dairy is a big part of that obviously you know the first the, the first thing that all retailers are 
are striving to do is to provide what they believe to be the best value and the, and the um the biggest pillar of value is 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 price of course not the only pillar of value quality convenience um choice and range of course is is there as well but um you know without price without the perception that you're getting the best deal you're not going to succeed as a large scale retailer uh, unless you've got some unless you've got something else i mean look at what's I can't honestly believe that when this is over, discounters are not going to be still offering products at competitive prices and, and Tesco is going to go on price watch and Sainsbury's are going on price watch and Asda are going to go on price watch to try to beat them. So I, I, I don't see this is going to have a big effect on um, upward movement of prices. It might have an effect on other elements of the value chain, quality maybe, safety maybe. Um, retail integrity, maybe, but I think price will find a level, and I, I, I really hope that is the case everywhere. By the way, not just not just uh, in the UK. I think that's a general thought. And, and as far as obviously things are going to change, and we don't know when the lights at the end of the tunnel. But what opportunities do you think there are for retailers and for brands in the next little while? Well, I mean, there's a huge opportunity now. A lot of the brands are working how they take those opportunities out. There's some fantastic marketing out there right now. There's some great stuff. I mean, just move, move away from FMCG for a second. You know, some of the stuff that Netflix are doing in terms of encouraging people to stay at home. Um, you know, by if you're going to spoil it for the rest of us, we're going to spoil it for you. And, you know, sharing plot lines on outdoor advertising. Brilliant, brilliant brilliantly creative approach to solving a problem great brand building great brand building for net for netflix other brands are you know looking at the current situation that we're all feeling you know the uncertainty that we're feeling and um maybe trying to plot a roadmap you know beyond uncertainty into sort of recovery into reconnecting with society and trying to anticipate maybe how they're going to be thinking about their products, you know, differently before we get back to what we might consider normal. A couple of, you know, tangible opportunities, you know, brands that have had a strong competency in selling online and e-commerce are doing are doing well at the moment. We're seeing a lot of our clients who are putting, you know, a lot of the a lot of their their, their spend into e-commerce and trying to empathize and trying to trying to use shopper insight to to create messages to build sales i think that stores are going to be a little bit different when we come out of this as well um stores are going to people are going to want to get back into stores people are going to um you know expect experiences in stores stores have got a lot to uh, a lot of ground to make up especially the ones with the empty shelves the just-in-time supply chain, you know, has proved not to be that successful in these times of crisis. So I think brands have, have opportunities to talk, to build at retail, to talk more than just price, to talk about convenience, to talk about um, quality, can talk about reassurance, and, you know, to tap into perhaps some new shopper insights, which, um, you know, are obviously going to develop post this pandemic you know the, the, the wonderful thing about shoppers is that we're all we're all shoppers we're all we've all got a point of view 
and you you know and I know our needs change by the day and we're very unforgiving lot so our our the insight and what's going through our mind is what brands need to need to unpick and if they do that then they've got a fighting chance of um you know staying ahead and and and, and taking the opportunities that will no doubt be out there there is obviously a bit strange in so far as a great deal of the products are short shelf life and perishable how does that apply to dairy do you think well dairy so so dairy is quite big here the thing around dairy is you've got all of the health and well-being elements of dairy which are i think top of mind in these times too what i believe to be true is that although people are going into the supermarket and buying into the things that they believe are going to protect their family best now, you know, the, the antibacterial washes and um, maybe masks, sanitizers, and what have you. Dairy as a category, with all it provides, has a role to play in, in, in the shopper's perception of, of healthy lifestyle. I, I'm convinced about that. There's some it's very interesting to see in store now some more activity of what you might call the sort of uh, active dairy products in sort of the probiotic yogurts, the probiotic yogurt drinks. They're ramping up their um, their activity all over. And it's right. So, you know, I, I noticed, for instance, I, I'll give you a UK example. I noticed on LBC, which is a, you know, obviously a very popular radio station in the UK right now, You've got um, radio advertising for Yakult, for instance. In the UAE right now, we've, we see an uplift in advertising for uh, Activia, Danone's Activia, you know, and having a conversation about um, the properties of, the, of, of good bacteria to boost immunity. So dairy as a category as a whole and the health benefits of that, I think, are going to play well out of people's if you like, enhanced uh, receptiveness to messages of quality and health. And some of the categories within dairy has a, have a very relevant role to play right now. I think shelf life is an issue, of course, uh, especially if you can't get to the shops. Um, I think there's going to need to be some, um, some work done to make e-commerce, dairy e-commerce, more trusted, sending out products that need to be chilled especially at this time in, in, in ways that can't guarantee it is not very smart. So I think if e-commerce um, continues to develop, as I believe it, it will, and as I've mentioned, then retailers and dairy uh, producers are going to need to work out ways of making sure they can get the product to their end users as fresh and as, as the shoppers, as the, the end users would want, as easy as possible. I don't see there'll be much change in 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 the in-store chillers i think you know apart from the health benefits as i mentioned it's going to be it's still going to be a strong category but i think e-commerce is a big opportunity and there's some um you know innovation that i'm expecting to see from the industry that could uh, transform the ability of people to buy dairy particularly fresh dairy uh online via e-commerce amazon or, or or any of the other grocery delivering uh, solutions. Would that also extend to plant-based? We've seen a huge trend in terms of uh, uh, plant-based dairy. We've seen a huge upsurge in 
you know, other, I think we can say milk, different different milks that are not necessarily from from a dairy source. You know, there's there's a, a wider trend towards veganism now that, that we're seeing in, in, in our in our food industry. I, I think the two things will continue to 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 grow fairly symbiotically. I think that the benefits of, of traditional dairy that's well established in the psyche of, of, of consumers and shoppers and people. Generally people, you know, understand the benefits. The other alternatives that are coming in to the market now need, I think, a little bit more help terms of being able to deliver a shop a tangible benefit beyond the uh, beyond the dairy free in things like taste in things like usage but i think you'll get there because the products are improving every time every every day but i think that the two things will grow symbiotically i, I don't i don't see it certainly not here I and mean, whether that's a case in the uk i don't know but certainly here i see you know dairy as a huge breakfast driver with cheese, with labneh, with yogurt, we I see dairy, you know, as as a vital part of that Arabic kitchen and Arabic lifestyle. As I say, maybe in other parts of the world, uh, not so. Maybe in Asia, possibly not so. I see good times ahead for dairy, particularly here in the Middle East. And that's it for another podcast. I already have a couple of interviews lined up for next week's show, so I hope you will join me again for that one. And if you're new to the Dairy Dialogue and looking for things to do, hopefully not at the bottom of your list, feel free to delve into some of the past episodes. We shall see how another week of isolation for most of us is working out. And until then, I hope you stay sane, stay safe, are able to keep working, and generally just getting through this. I'm sure the weather here will still be wonderful until we're once more allowed to go walking in the mountains and along the shores when it will start tipping it down with rain again. But you know, it will feel wonderful regardless. So maybe make a list of all the things you're going to do when this is all over. Make time to do the things that really matter. Before I start sounding like a motivational speaker, when the closest I am is probably a loudspeaker, I'll leave it there and catch up with you again next week. And so, until then, thanks for listening. (laughs) 